Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. says that it's a crying shame that there are thousands upon thousands of songs about Christmas, but only one song about the boys being back in town. <laughs> I love that line. I think it's true. I love Thin Lizzy as well. But today we're uh, beginning by talking about boys, B-O-Y-S. Um, and uh, I just thought since we've got a lot to talk about today, uh, let's just jump straight in. Got Skip it. over the nice Sarah. Go for Here the jugular. For <laughs> the perpetually wise Sarah Condon. Oh, my word. <laughs> That's how she was described by one very prominent uh, journalist, which I thought was uh, actually under, 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 uh, understanding the fact. He doesn't know me in real life, obviously. <laughs> the perpetually wise Sarah Condon wrote a piece for Mockingbird called When the World Calls Them Otherwise, God Calls Them Good. And Sarah, the response to this article... Um, it's as, it's as viral a thing that has gone up on Mockingbird in Explosive. quite some time. And uh, clearly you struck a major, major nerve. Let's see what resonated. Boys, she's talking about raising kids today. Boys t- are deemed too intense, too loud, too active. They misbehave earlier and more demonstrably than most girls. They have a much higher rate of diagnosis for challenges like ADHD and mood disorders. They spend more time in detention than their female peers, and God help you if you're deemed a troublemaker at an early age. To be honest, the world can feel like it is geared towards really well-behaved girls. Education definitely feels this way. Expecting children to sit for seven hours a day with few breaks in between is how many children in our country do school. And the less resource the community, the harder school generally is on the boys. Parenting can feel that way too. And Sarah, you know, just for the sake of listeners who uh, don't know the, the stats, but you have one boy and one girl. Um, so a little bit of more authority than perhaps okay. I might have. Uh, when I look at my friends who have two or three quiet daughters, I sometimes wonder if we are even doing the same thing. You go on to say, the world does not trust boys, and to a certain degree I understand the mistrust. Mass shooting, sexual violence, and money embezzlement are all generally the crimes of men. But boys are not men yet. I remember when Olympian Ryan Lochte was called to task for his crime. At the Brazilian Olympics, people defended him, claiming that he was, quote, just a boy. I looked at my then first grader and shuddered at this comparison. He did not need to be put into the same category as this misbehaving man. And yet, I think that our need to call men who commit such crimes boys says more about the way we think about our boys than the way we think about those men. I often hear mothers of sons worry deeply about their boys' future trajectory. They might joke about them being too much with a weary look of what the future holds. It's like we all think we might uh, be actually raising the next Harvey Weinstein or uh, Dylan Klebold. We forget entirely that Jimmy Fallon was probably a real handful too. 
then you sort of close out by saying, I love Stranger Things, the Netflix show, for so many reasons, but I love the way it portrayed boys. They were intense, loud, active, and beautifully funny. They were very into farting and fantasy games. It took them years to be into girls enough to know how to make out with them. They loved each other because no one told them they were unlovable. No one told them they were bad. In fact, the adults who did not understand those boys were always on the wrong side of the story. There are so few places where boys can feel like they are not constantly out of place. I hope that home is one of them, and I hope that the church can be one too. This week, I took the boys' table for our elementary Sunday school class. They like to sit together, and they, at least for right now, like for me to sit there too. When our curriculum story makers... Uh, asked them to draw what God might have been planning for them when the sea and the sky were created. One of them drew a dog with a clearly seen butthole. We all laughed. One of the youngest at the table got really upset because he wrote his name wrong on his workbook. Another boy at the table wrote his name wrong on purpose to make the littlest feel better. And I got to just sit there and marvel at a God who made these little boys on purpose and that he chose to call them good. I left out some of the piece uh, because I really want everyone to read all of it. Um, but Sarah, I thought we could just start with you. Uh, you know, just w- where are you with this right now? What, what do you think accounts for the outpouring of interest? Who is the people that were interested? What, what do you, uh, wh- what do you think it says? I mean, I think for me, I think one of the first thoughts I had about having a son in this world was that I wish they would label schools with signs that just said really great for well-behaved girls. So we'd know just like probably not a good school for us. Um, I, that was the first time I was like, Oh, this is gonna, this is going to be hard and this is going to be different. Um, And then I think, you know, for whatever reason, we're seeing a really, really high, uh, we're seeing a high diagnosis rate for our boys. And, and you know, I think what I, what I definitely didn't want to communicate to people was like, they're being over um, diagnosed, because I, I do actually think that that's happening. I think that's something we should be looking at. I don't know why it's happening, but it is. I mean, I can tell you, so I've continued to be the mom for the boys table for Sunday school. So I have seven boys, third grade and under at that table. And I've had moms come up to me who've said, you just need to know, like, he's dealing with ADHD, or you just need to know he's dealing with dysgraphia, or you just need to know, you know. And, um, I'm always like, I just want to be real with you. Like in the spectrum of like weird ass hattery that's going to happen at that table, your kid's not even going to rank. You know what I mean? Like they're just like, they're all in it together. They've all bringing their own like wacky boy energy to the table. And like, I'm here to love them in that. And, you know, I was thinking about this this morning because I was thinking about the way that God sets us up for things in the way that God set me up to be the mother of a son. And I was thinking about how my brother and I have this huge age difference. I mean, it's seven, eight years. It might as well feel like a decade. And I, I've like mothered him a lot. I just did. Like I learned to love boys through my brother, Aaron. And, um, and sometimes probably once a week, I actually call my son, Neil Aaron, when I look at him, like I've always had this deep love of boys. And I think that the world does not. 
And um, it is, I think if there was anything that, you know, when we write things, and you guys know this because you write, sometimes you write things, it's like, you know, Aunt Becky is Jesus, right? Like, that wasn't you. That was the Holy Spirit, right, RJ? Like, you have these moments, you're just like, oh my gosh. And when I thought why it's so upsetting to me when these celebrities, when these public figures have just do terrible things, and people say, oh, you know, well, they were just a boy when it happened, um, people get really mad about that because they're like, you know, they're, they're not boys or right. You know, there's this whole sort of like righteous indignation that happens about them being men. And it's like, I actually could give, you know, a shit about, I've decided I can say this word now on the podcast. So second week in a row, here we go about those guys. <laughs> what I ca- what I care deeply about <laughs> is what you begin, like what you're beginning to say about our boys. Um, You know, I, I will say what I loved about the reaction to this piece is I didn't have people. It obviously is such an issue because no one has stepped forward and been like, but what about girls? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's really, that really says something to me because I was worried people were going to be like, this is sexist. And no one has said that because if you are raising a son in this world, you know that this is true. So, yeah. And it's almost that you're not really people for whatever reason don't feel like they're allowed to say most of this no. stuff. And there's a so, but RJ, you've raised uh, two. You've raised two boys, and you're raising a third right now. I guess you're raising all. Yeah, three we're of them. we are all boys all the time in our household. I mean, I all have boys. three brothers. My wife has four brothers. Um, we have three boys, so it is just boys, 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 and we. It's just what we're used to. And I remember Jamie made a friend when our middle son was in preschool who had two girls and she went over to this friend's house one afternoon and it was like dead silent. And she was like, are the, are the girls home? And are, are are, no, her, her friend was like, oh yeah. I was like, where, <laughs> where are they? Oh, they're just playing in their room quietly. You know, and it was like, what is going on? Because in our household, when things get quiet, you know that the boys are up to no good. You know, we literally, yes. we literally had somebody's on. We the literally roof. had our boys yeah. convinced that that Jamie had um, magic powers because if things got too quiet, you knew they were off in their room, like coloring on the wall or something like that, mm-hmm. or taking mm-hmm. something apart. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, we love us, we love us some boys, um, and. You know, talking about this does make me, it makes everyone a little bit nervous, right? Because you don't want to get into sort of gendered stereotypes of boys are like this and girls are like this. But if you've never listened to the This American Life testosterone episode, listen mm-hmm. to that. It is unbelievable because it's stories about people who, men who like physically, biologically lose their testosterone and what happens. Um, trans women who start taking testosterone and what happens. Mm. And it's a powerful thing. You know, we're, we're big on Mockingbird here about forces kind of, you know, beyond our control to some degree. And testosterone is powerful. And having had two boys go through, uh, well, one who's been through puberty and one who's going through puberty, man, it just, um, it throws you for a loop. And I feel um, it, it is, it is kind of, I don't want to say it's temporary insanity, but it is like a temporary um, uh, personality shift. And so we love boys. We, we've embraced the danger. You know, my wife finally at some point said to me, because I'm happy, you know, my, my three-year-old son, who's actually two when this happened a few weeks back, found a way to get himself on our roof. 
he 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 pushed the chair pushed the chair up against a fence scaled a fence climbed on a shed and pulled himself up on the roof and we only found out because we heard we were in our bedroom under where the roof was and we heard the pitter patter of something on the roof we go outside and see our two year old proud as proud as could be <laughs> and my Santa wife Claus. starts hyperventilating <laughs> and I honestly I was proud of him. You know, and so early on with our first round, you know, because again, I believe we have a 17-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a now three-year-old. Right. Um, my wife, we would go to the playground in New York City, and our sons would be doing all sorts of dangerous things. And finally, my wife is like, I can't be here. She's like, I'm happy to clean up the blood. I just can't watch it happen. You know, and so that was like the nice division of uh, <laughs> of labor. Of labor. Yeah. And also along, this is also going to be, come off as slightly, I don't know, sexist, but I'm going to say it. I did find myself thinking in the midst of that, because, I mean, my wife is about the most amazing boy mom that there could possibly be. And even she was like, I can't do this. This is too much for me, right? I can't, I can't be here to watch the, the fall happen. Um, that to some degree, like, moms exist so that children will stay alive and dads exist so that they'll sort of take some risks or something like that. The dad, dads mm, are just more comfortable yeah. with risk-taking. And let's, let's face it, risk-taking is really fun. But it's also um, scary and dangerous. And it, it, if, it's, if it's all dads, there might be a little too much risk taking. Like if, if you've ever been on a father-son camp out, uh, you know that, that, oh, that, the, no. that the dads are like, you, you walk up. I, I literally was at a father-son camp out and um, hanging out with a bunch of dads. And there were no boys in sight. And they're like a large body of water about you know a quarter mile away. And one dad uh, walks up and says, hey, have you guys seen my son? And one was like, oh, you know, I saw him down by the water like 15 minutes ago. Go check there. And I just thought to myself, yeah, Sarah's about to have a heart attack right now. Um, I yeah. thought to myself, this would never happen if, if moms were here. Never, ever, ever. But yeah, guess yeah, what? Yeah. Nobody died. Yeah. It was okay. Yeah. You know, someone might have died. Yeah. Um, so I think this is a fascinating thing. And, and I, the other thing I'll say, if you have boys and you haven't seen it, to watch the PBS documentary Raising Cain. Raising Cain, because mm. it's all about this and about how our, really how our public school system is not geared for boys. And especially as things like recess get cut and as people are expected to sit quietly at a desk for hours on end, um, it is not, as you said, Sarah, it's not a boy-friendly environment. And I'm so thankful that my two oldest boys went to an all-boys school in New York for a number of years, which really understood boys. And um, right. classes ended at like 1.30 in the afternoon and they went and ran around for two hours after that. Um, yeah. So I just, you're it makes a huge genius. Difference. Sarah uh, well, I, you know, and I, I think the, the other thing I would say in this is like, I have a lot of friends actually in my life, maybe just cause I need balance who have only girls. Like I have a lot of mom friends that have only girls and it was funny to have this piece go up. And one of my friends from church was keeping our kids on Sunday night. Cause we both are leading worship. And she sent me this whole series of pictures because they'd found a lizard in the house yes. and they straight up handed Neil a broom and they were like, go get the lizard. <laughs> and it's just like this like beautiful series of him, like almost knocking everything over in their house, like to get a lizard out. So it's not to say that like, there aren't these incredible parents of daughters who get it and who are like, it, like who choose to be in it with me at certain moments, which I also find to be such a gift. Um, but you know, I, I will be honest with you if I were the parent of two girls, especially two. I mean, I know that there are girls with ADHD and I know all that with behavior stuff, but generally speaking, my friends with a couple of girls, it's just a lower key house. If I were that mom, I would be so judgmental. I mean, I just know that I would be so judgmental. And so um, 
that's the gift God has given me is he just ripped away my ability to judge. Your cross to bear. <laughs> this, it's so interesting to hear you guys talk about this. RJ, I remember when we had our second boy, your wife actually told my wife is like the secret to, to raising boys is just you got to... Uh, feed them sleep them and run them yeah, they're like dogs then, yeah. they're like dogs they're like dogs yeah. <laughs> and uh we've we've definitely found that to be true and yet you know anytime again there's such a cultural nervousness about talking about the differences between boys and girls which are which are so completely apparent and they're in our face all the time and yet we like you know every every i'd ask my son like you know who has to, who gets in trouble at your class and it's never ever Ever the girls, <laughs> and that's not to say. I mean, b- because when we describe the differences, then those very quickly become into, to become prescriptions, and that boys must be like this or girls must be like that. Sure. And we know that that can be a straitjacket, and um, and yet we've lost a positive vision of what uh, boys can be. I remember a couple years ago, I wrote something about how young men uh, more and more are want prefer they want to have daughters rather than. Mm rather than young boys because they feel like if you have a daughter it's sort of exciting she can sort of break boundaries and she can there's any number of things she can do and then if you that, that things have so so switched that if you have a um a boy you're like you don't even you're, you're so ambivalent about masculinity in general and then the the number of things that you only think of the things that you hope that they don't become rather than the things that That's they could terrible. become what a recipe for disaster like let me let me let me have a child that I can pour all of my vicarious hopes and dreams into who can justify my existence. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, the truth is when, when we say that boys and girls are the same, what you end up doing is you um, set them up for massive resentments of the other gender or the other sex as they grow up. Um, because uh, If you, you say boys and girls are the same, you're going to be constantly disappointed in your sons. I mean, you yeah. just are. They're not... I mean, I think... I, I just... I, it's just such an an impossible thing for them to be able to pull off for most of them to be able to pull off. I just, when I was in seminary, I can remember there was like lots of gender conversations at Yale, which no one is surprised about how similar the genders were. And I can remember sitting in that classroom and looking around and thinking everyone in this classroom has either never had a kid or has not had a kid in 25 years. And so you have this very like progressive, idealized, romanticized version of it. Because meanwhile, I had an 18-month-old who like the only words he would say was big truck from the back seat. You know what I mean? Like that was like, I was like, you need to meet some kids before you make these assumptions about how we're just like imparting gender to them. You know, I remember when we picked up our eight month old daughter from daycare one day and I had of course not thought about getting her gendered toys because like you shouldn't do that. Right. So I hadn't thought about it and I walk in to pick her up and she has a baby doll. She's eight months old. She said she's a baby doll on her shoulder and she's patting its back. And I was like, is she into dolls? And Stop doing like, that. What are you doing? All she's into. <laughs> yeah, I, was like, I mean, it's, it, it, Yes, I do think that we can like get too locked into gender, but I don't think we're anywhere near that danger in 2019. No. I think if anything, we've gone so far in the other direction, we can't even um, we can't even see what beautiful things can come out of just our, our boys. I mean, that for me, I've now I'm in week three, and I, I know we've given a shout out to Storymakers, but the curriculum for boys is so incredible. It's incredible for both genders because. 
it's so neutral and free and based in the biblical story that they can really do anything they want to. And the best part of my week, my worship, honestly, the past couple of weeks, I mean, the sermons have been great, babe, but has been sitting at this table with these seven boys and watching them, you know, this, we have a, we have a kid at the table who's dealing with some writing uh, stuff. And so in, in it's affecting his ability to draw. And so it kind of freaks him out to have like a zine in front of me to write in. And so I, I last week before last, I was like, let's get pipe cleaners because he can make some of the pipe cleaners. We'll tape it in the zine. We're good. So it was so funny. We pull out all these pipe cleaners and like half the boys at the table were like, awesome you know like then then none of them had to draw they could all just make their own weird you know they immediately all made creations and yeah yeah exactly exactly like you know i mean the best was what the ecosystem you know draw your own ecosystem we're learning about creation and one of the boys draws danger world i mean that's like you just don't get any better than danger world so i mean and sarah one of the things that's so great about that piece that i think is when you highlight stranger things you're not just saying that boys are tougher you also say that they have they're kind of they have their own gifts and 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 like yeah. those boys um you know they're the adventurous and they're risk takers and they're the kind of they 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 get really earnest about like you know uh, these conceptual silliness things but but they're yes. they're kind of they 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 display a lot of what you would call boyish traits without it being the negative negativity like masculine i mean the the guy who's like uber masculine is like the the villain but these boys are still like rough and tumble and kind of snotty and gross but that's also part of what allows them to uh really defeat the uh bad guys so and, I, and they're also I, willing I, to sing never-ending story you know over the radio to, oh to the woman gosh. they love which is I mean, just I, like I, I, oh I'm, my gosh I feel like I'm I'm old-fashioned enough to say that the world needs both uh, girls and boys, and uh, isn't that a uh, isn't that a strange thing to be that you'd have to qualify that? Uh, but speaking of like, let's let's actually shift on to a more um, I guess uh, girl-centered piece. This unbelievable essay by Tavi Gevinson in New York Magazine. It was also it's a little published long. On the cut. I just wanna. It is long. Yeah, but she that you could skip half of it. But here, who would I be without Instagram? She asks. Tavi Gevinson is like one of the earliest adopters. She was a teen influencer, and look her up. You'll find her bio. It's very, it's quite long for a girl her age. This is how she describes what it was like growing up with Instagram. She said, "With Instagram." Self-defining and self-worth measuring spilled over into the rest of the day, eventually becoming my default mode. If I received conflicting views of my worth or, looking at other people's accounts, disparate ideas about how to live, the influx of information could lead to a kind of panic spiral. I would keep scrolling as though the cure for how I felt was at the bottom of my feed. I'd feel like I was crawling out of my skin, heartbeat first, for minutes and hours. Finally, I'd see something that made me feel bad enough to put my phone away. This cycle of judging and being judged is a black hole in which time disappears, in which I and the people I encounter are frozen in our profiles. It is where I nourish my insecurities over the millions of past versions of me that float around like old yearbook photos, and where I still judge people I don't know for reasons I can't even remember. Together, we have helped Instagram become its own multi-billion dollar economy, fueled by our attempts to solve the great mystery of how one looks in the eyes of another. 
There are plenty of well-documented reasons to distrust Instagram, but most unnerving are the ways in which it has led me to distrust myself. After countless adventures through the black hole, my propensity to share, perform, and entertain has melded with a desire far more cynical, to be liked quantifiably for an idealized version of myself at a rate not possible even 10 years ago. I think I am a writer and an actor and an artist, but I haven't believed the purity of my own intentions ever since I became my own salesperson, too. And she goes on to, she says, when I review posts from a few years ago now, I almost envy my own life as though it were someone else's. Then I mentally fill it out with everything that happened off camera. Here's my friend and me dancing at a fashion party in very tiny outfits. Today, we no longer speak. Here's me in the pool at my Palm Springs Airbnb. I self-medicated so much I missed my flight home. Here's me posing at the Met Ball. I sent my therapist an email declaring my spiritual crisis from inside the after-party bathroom. Outside the bathroom at the Standard Hotel was a literal hall of mirrors. Stop there. There's another section I want to read, but um, where, where are you guys? Is this all sort of obvious stuff, just really, really well articulated, or is anything fresh for you? Well, I was thinking about the Instagram screenshot that I sent uh, you guys and TJ um, of a woman who was doing a birth announcement. And I don't even know why she's popular. She's an influencer. I don't know why. Um, It's probably her hair. But um, she was on there to make a birth announcement. And it was like, it was just the most coordinated, like, thing I've ever seen um, and contrived, frankly. I mean, it was just like orange, a lot of orange, fall oriented, um, a buffalo check print, which I'm into um, and is very hot at Kirkland's right now. So um, and her turned to the side with her hand on her belly, holding the photograph of the ultrasound. I mean, it was a lot. And I looked at it and the thing with Instagram It's the thing with social media. It's the thing with the internet. And Dave, I feel like you were the first person I heard say this. We are so in the wild west of this shit. I mean, sorry, second time you guys, but, um, I really feel like we are in like the 1920s with cigarettes. You know what I mean? Like you like had a cough in the 1920s, but you were like, can't be the cigarettes. Like I keep hearing they're good for me. (laughs) My doctor prescribed (laughs) them for my, my speech impediment. So like, because I saw that photograph of her and it was so many different like psychological things that happened for me. A, her hair, because I'm obsessed with good hair and I don't have it. B, I did definitely did not do anything like this when I found out I was pregnant with my own children. And it was really hard for me to get pregnant. Like we had all sorts of fertility stuff. I'm like, I obviously didn't do this well. Like I should have made a much bigger production out of it. See, like, how does she get her husband to wear what she tells him to wear? Like, I don't know what that secret (laughs) is, but I don't possess that ability. You know what I mean? Like, it was so many layers of me hating her, uh, me judging her, my own inadequacy, um, all in one image. And there's no way that's good for me or her. I mean, it's so interesting to read this woman's viewpoint as someone who is doing that and has done that kind of work for such a long time that like she doesn't know if her creativity and her art is hers or if it is just like a repercussion of being in this era of social media and like in reaction to I mean that's like such a that's such a disturbing thought and yet it's a thought like on some level I think I can identify with um as someone who writes so 
anyway, I was, uh, yeah, I, it was pretty disturbing. Mm. Rutger? I, I'm so old. I'm not, I'm not, you are I know, so I was like, I'm not on mind. Instagram. I just, I can't, I can't, I can't Instagram. do it. I can't do it. Like I'm still on. Is Jamie there? Can Jamie talk? Um, oh, honestly, <laughs> only for her business. You know, her business yeah. is on Instagram. Yeah. Um, and we're trying yeah. to think through what, what that it. looks like, you know, what it looks like. For, but she, I mean, she probably posted last two months ago or something like that. And she's mm-hmm. doing just fine without it. And we don't right. really understand right. it. So I am on Facebook, although, you know, Davis, you've written a lot. Uh, scrolling through my Facebook feed is not necessarily good for my mental health or um, sense of, uh, you know, satisfaction or contentedness with my own life. Um, but, but it's a light cough. It's so. a, okay, good. Uh, it's just a light cough. That's right. Yeah. Um, but that's the thing, Sarah. Is like you're right. That the thing, the post you sent was so obviously curated. But the thing oh. is, everything is so curated, even when it supposedly is kind of off the cuff. And that's the great lie, right? That's even yeah. she acknowledges at the end of the article is like now apparently what people want is transparency and authenticity. And so I'm going to yes. curate the most transparent, authentic post I can. It is just. I mean, it seems to me like 95% artifice. I mean, the people that are telling the truth on Instagram, nobody's following them. I can't imagine because no one wants the truth. You you can't handle the truth. Um, And it's not gram worthy, you know? But are you ever telling the truth on Instagram? Like, I mean that seriously. Like if you are, if this is really for like a whole audience... Like, are you ever telling the truth? It was so interesting. I'm sure some people kind of compare- are, but it doesn't go well for them. It can't go well know. for them, you know, because we're sinners and there's just, we're, 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 we're just balls yeah. of insecurity and conflicted emotions and mistakes. And, and if you actually, I mean, that's why like you can't, that's why, it's, you know, marriage is important because in marriage, someone sees you completely as you are and they're in it with you and they love you and they forgive you and you forgive them. But man, bear your soul to someone who doesn't really love you or know you, isn't in it with you. Like, good luck, you know? Um, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know. Well, the notion that you always have an audience and that you can't, uh, growing up like that, I mean, it, it, it to some extent, you know, if for those of us who believe in God, we believe that God is, is you know, present and that in in one sense we do have an audience but it's not an audience of of uh criticism or at least some people some people do internalize it as an audience of condemnation and and criticism but here you have i almost want to say well um, i think people automatically actually assume even when they're alone that um that there is some sentience or that that is the feeling of 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 you're you're an audience to yourself even she finally kind of comes full circle in the way that she's able to uh, get back into Instagram is to pay attention to the people that seem to be having fun. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I, lo- I love that how she talked about sort of had, to, but, but there's a one moment, there's a one passage in here about uh, self sabotage, which was too rich not to share. Uh, she says in the mirror, my face tells me the story of my own anxiety in 2014, the same year I moved to New York with my face on the cover of this very magazine, New York magazine, I developed a habit of picking at its skin. I sometimes do it mindlessly in the middle of another activity and almost always I find myself in front of a mirror. Once I start, I continue until I feel some release via peel, pop, etc. Sorry. Once I realize what I've done, I examine my reflection and feel like a stupid, feral animal. I hate that my anxiety is so easily betrayed by my face that whether I go bare or wear cakey makeup, I am wearing my psychology for all to see. The self-loathing leads to more picking and the cycle continues. 
of all the nervous habits to have, why claw at my greatest asset? Because she talks about how every time her face is in an Instagram post, it gets a lot more attention. One friend suggests it is a territorial response to the publicness, a way of exercising control. Another thinks it is a subconscious rejection of the type of fame I have both relied on and resented. I wonder if the longer I continue to pick at my face, the longer I feel less like a participant in the adult world and more like a teenager who is still just visiting. With scabs and pimples, I am not taking any of this too seriously. I am dodging certain expectations before I can fail to meet them. I am still an advanced child rather than an averaged adult. Again, I, I hate to be so cynical and old, but even as I'm reading the article, I'm thinking to myself, would she even be writing this article if the latest research and, and posts that are trending were not about sort of transparency and self-revealing? You know, is even this article yeah. a, a calculation based on what her audience seems to want right now? So it was, I, I mean, it was nice to see someone talk so transparently about what it's been like to be on Instagram and, and to put herself out there and to subject herself to judgment and, and the, the, the self-loathing and, and the, the inner um, accuser. And, um, but I don't know, man. I have such a conflicted relationship with, with social media, at least, again, with Instagram, because basically I don't understand it and it scares me. So, Sarah, as someone who is very fluent Thanks, in a Dad. language... No, no, whatever. I, need, I, figure, I feel like I need to do it. Like, how... Sarah, what do you think? I mean... Why Instagram? I like the I like mixing text with images. I think it's interesting and funny, yeah. um, and and engaging. And so I I do enjoy that part of it. I will say though, RJ, what you said a few minutes ago about everything being curated and contrived is a hundred percent true. Like I put up a picture of my kids yesterday because they both got their Halloween costumes, and we we try to be budget minded on some things in the Cotton household. Just kidding, we really don't. Uh, we should, but we don't. But um, we um, are not budget conscious at all when it comes to Halloween costumes. We go all out. I don't care how much money it is. So my kids got these like crazy Halloween costumes, and in the mail, I'm not making them. Okay, and <laughs> your son's involved a dog in the butt. Interestingly, to bring things full. <laughs> Um, but I took a picture of them in our living room which is like you know as loud and brightly colored as one might imagine my living room is and there are puzzles everywhere I mean it's mass chaos the dogs walking through and it does it is very off the cuff it's not like I like told the kids to pull puzzles out I mean it is and yet like I know what that frame looks like it looks really joyful and really fun and really carefree, um, breezy, as Stephanie Phillips says. Um, but also, like, we had to last night be like, you have to eat dinner, you know? And we had to be like, stop arguing about puzzles. And um, we had that, to put like... That up post it yeah i mean we 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 had to like then like get them out of their halloween costumes as they're like screaming at us because they were going to try to like wear them while they ate dinner which then they get food on them and then like they're then they won't wear them anymore i mean it's like you know you really just see this like beautiful snapshot that is beautiful and i love that precious moment but like there is all this stuff happening around it um, that you don't see and I don't mention and, and I don't do that also. I mean, I think some of this like real stuff parents do with Instagram, I actually think is really bad. I mean, just to name it, I think sometimes people overshare about their children's stuff on Instagram. I've seen people post 
videos of their kids throwing fits. And that's there forever. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, I, I, I actually don't want to see real Instagram, to be honest with you. It actually is kind of like a pleasant escape for me at certain moments. Um, and I like Instagram because people don't fight on it the way they do on other social media platforms generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, and you know, there's some interesting stuff that's happening in Instagram where they're like putting some things on to limit bullying. And I mean, I, you know, I, I certainly don't want to speak down to Instagram, but, but yeah, I mean, this is really disturbing to read. It was disturbing to think about somebody getting Instagram at 11 and beginning to curate a whole vision of herself. Yeah. And obviously that's been tough for her. And just to name it, I am on Facebook and I do the exact same that you do thing that you do, Sarah is like, I'm, you know, I'm only per- posting things that will make me look interesting and smart and like a good father, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, but, but maybe the best we can do is just to name that and be like, look, these are all yeah. about ideal idealized life to some degree, self-promotion, um, you yeah. know, and, and, and maybe the best you can do is to, is to be like, let's, let's have it be fun at least. Um, and not, right. and not oppressive. Um, yeah, but, but right. is that, is that possible? I don't know. I, I, I feel it's a massive, massive opportunity for the gospel, frankly, for people who are preaching a message that has to do with the di- difference between who you would like to be or who you would like yes. others to think you and are. And I've said and that. You, I've stolen that from and you who you, numerous occasions. who you actually are. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if we're not—the reason we keep talking about social media is because, A, it's where people actually live and where almost—where lots of people actually live. Yes. But secondly, it's—you um, know, we've been handed— I, 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 you know, the, the, the gods on Silicon Valley have handed down these, these, these tools, which we thought were blessings, but have actually turned out to basically be curses with some, some major qualifications. And by the way, I think meme culture is, some of it is really funny. And I creative agree. And, it's and hilarious. I, and I, yes. I get forwarded stuff on Instagram that I think is delightful and extremely funny all the time. But by and large, Social media, I think, is is we can say is a curse, uh, mental health wise, spiritually, and yet for people who are really believe in basically the law and the gospel or law and grace, uh, I, how could we have a better, uh, you know, entree? Uh, I don't. I don't mm-hmm. think you could, and I also don't think it's when people tell me that these things and justification, law and gospel, these are antiquated paradigms or whatever, and 16th century problems. You want to be like, what universe do you live in? Because the universe <laughs> I live in is completely absorbed with this. In fact, it's almost impossible to understate it. Um, so, that's that's my two cents on the matter. <laughs> <laughs> so then maybe um, the task yeah. is for Christians to think creatively about how they can use these tools to, you know, not just the pulpit. The pulpit is a place to do it, but is there a way actually to um, lay that bare and preach good and, and sort of bring forth good news at the same time? Like You just, you you just describe, you preach the law by simply describing what it's like to be on Instagram as, as Tavi Gevinson did, I think. And yeah. then, yeah. then you talk about, well, what if, you know, what if your righteousness was a gift? Or what if the, the audience that was actually paying attention to you loved you? You know, yeah. What, what yeah. would that be like? Uh, how would it? What would your? What would your? What would your life look like then if you weren't trying to leverage any kind of uh, acceptance out of uh, how you present your self presentation? Yeah. 
That or just post Robert for our cape and quotes, which is always, I think, you can never go wrong with that. The perpetually they, wise. People, people love them. He is perpetualized. People love him and he pisses them off, which means he's, he is 100% getting it right. But Well, speaking of people that, that, that are loved and also piss people off, John Gray. RJ. Uh, <laughs> John Gray, the well-known atheist, uh, wrote a review of Tom Holland's new book. Tom Holland is a sort of a major pop historian. He's kind of becoming like the British version of David McCullough or something like that, but younger and hipper. And he's wrote a new book called Dominion, which is now out in the States, and it's about the spread of Christianity. And it, it's been prefaced by Holland himself changing his tune about the value of Christianity. But here's Gray, who's extremely thoughtful about this too, writing about why the liberal West is a Christian creation. Now, he's not writing this for some uh, you know, right-wing rag. He's writing it for the New Statesman, uh, the English publication, which is very much left of center. Uh, this is what he writes. He says, secular liberals dismiss Christianity as a fairy tale, but their values and their view of history remain essentially Christian. Oh, the Christian story tells of the Son of God being put to death on a cross. In the Roman world, this was the fate of criminals and those who challenged imperial power. Christianity brought with it a moral revolution. The powerless came to be seen as God's children and therefore deserving of respect as much as the highest in society. History was a drama of sin and redemption in which God, acting through his son, was on the side of the weak. Modern progressive movements have renewed this sacred history, though it is no longer God but quote-unquote humanity that speaks for the powerless. Unlike many, Holland, Tom Holland did not stay stuck in a posture of adolescent scorn for the religion in which he had been reared. Twenty years of reading and writing about classical antiquity wore away his youthful admiration for pagan culture. Caesar killed millions of Gauls and enslaved a million more. Across the Roman world, wailing infants could be found on the roadside, on rubbish heaps or in drains left there to perish. Female infants who were rescued would be raised as slaves or sold to brothels. It wasn't simply Roman callousness that Holland was repelled by. It was the, quote, complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. His values were not those of classical civilization, he realized. Still less of quote-unquote human nature, they were the values of the modern West's Christian past. As Holland shows, the triumph of Christianity was a rupture in Western civilization. There is nothing at all self-evident about the equal intrinsic worth of all human beings or the inherent preciousness of individual persons. These values which secular thinkers nowadays take for granted, were placed at the heart of the Western world by Christianity. In the final analysis, liberal humanism is a footnote to the Bible. Holland focuses on the story of Jesus' crucifixion. He focuses on the story of Jesus' crucifixion, which by showing God in the form of a broken and tormented human being upended the pagan worship of vitality and beauty. But if anything, this may understate the moral revolution that Christianity accomplished. The nature of morality itself changed. There is nothing in Aristotle about humility or brotherly love. Altruism was not much prized in the ancient world. Followers of Stoicism were encouraged to perform public duties, and Epicureans were instructed, uh, instructed others in how to be happy. But helping suffering human beings through acts of self-sacrifice was not required by morality or especially admired. Holland concludes by seeming to suggest that liberal values cannot survive the collapse of their Christian foundations. And Gray, uh, which I think is a very wise observation, and when we talk about the post-Christian, uh, post-religious landscape, uh, we, we, I don't, no doubt we'll see uh, the rise of sort of power or um, 
authority as being uh, a justification in and of itself without this sort of premium place for uh, the weak, uh, the despised. But he does go on to mention, Gray does, that the enormous uh, revival of Christianity that's going on in the world outside of the West, in post-communist Russia, the resurgence of the Orthodox Church, uh, what's going on in Africa, and, uh, and also where we are living in the West, liberalism is not fading away with Christian belief, but becoming more zealous and dogmatic, though I would say, therefore, less liberal, uh, truly liberal. Um, Sarah and RJ, where, where did you uh, land on this? Well, I was like looking up that quote. So we read, we talked about a piece uh, a couple of months ago about how sort of our modern day sense of care for the poor and just like nonprofit charity comes from, yeah. yeah, charity comes from Christianity in a lot of ways. It's linked just historically. And I love that quote from Julian the Apostate, the last pagan emperor of Rome, these impious Galileans, Christians, not only feed their own, but ours also, welcoming them with their agape. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. While the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. Um, I love how pissed he is. And that's okay. <laughs> um, um, but my husband and I were talking about this the other day. I found that article and actually where I found it was, you know, they were talking before about, which isn't something we talked about actually on the podcast um, with that charity piece, but um, the care of infants and children is incredibly Christian in the way that we do it now. I don't, I literally am not sure we would care for infants and children the way that we do now. And, um, we, we, you know, don't have to get into the abortion debate, but, um, but there is a history of I mean, the way we, we've that already we been care. sexist. So I would say just, just jump right <laughs> in. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I like, I, you know, I, was reading this piece. And I was like, wow, that's always intrinsically been a part of who we are is this care for, um, for the unlovable and the least among us. Um, yeah, there, there seem to be a lot of articles like this recently. You know, the, there was a phrase in there, Triumph of Christi- Christianity, which was the title of a book by Bart Ehrman that I think I mentioned about a year ago that he had a conversation yeah. with Terry Gross about on NPR, neither of whom are friends of sort of orthodox creedal Christianity. But he basically said exactly the same thing, that like the Roman world into which Christianity was born was a might-make-right, power-based, merciless, merciless existence, where if you were weak, you were worthless. And now Christianity just totally turned that on its head. Um, And I find this so refreshing, because I'm sure you guys too, I have a number of friends who I love dearly who are not into Christianity. They They don't like Christianity. RJ, I'm only friends yeah, exactly. with Christians, but okay, keep going. But <clears throat> they have a tremendous heart for the poor, the marginalized, the weak, and you just sort of, you know, sort of want to say to them, everything you, not everything, but like 90% of what you believe is Christian, and it comes 100% mm-hmm. from Jesus, and that's who Jesus was. And But just remembering that there was no one that Jesus shied away from. No one except for the self-righteous that he engaged and went to the most sinful, the most looked down upon, the most marginalized um, people in in his culture. And at the same time, he wasn't a relativist. He, you know, Francis Spufford makes that point in his, his chapter Yeshua in that amazing book, Unapologetic. So he's able to balance, like, being very clear about what 
um, sort of God's law is, which by the way, condemns absolutely everybody. And then to love the people who are, who know that they're sinners and who are downtrodden. Um, so I think it's important to say, and I, I just, I guess the last thing I would say, I, I found this piece to be hopeful, and this is really Pollyanna, Pollyanna-ish of me, but maybe there actually is a way for quote-unquote conservatives and quote-unquote liberals in our culture to come together, I don't know, I want to say around the person of Jesus, which is, you know, again, hopelessly optimistic. But as I think about, I said this recently, as I think about world religious historic figures, Jesus strikes me as just about one of the only ones that still today needs no apology. Like there's nothing he does in his ministry that you look back and you're like, ugh, you know, I mean, I guess he curses a fig tree and he, um, you know, a, a herd of swine drown themselves and he uh, calls a woman a dog. You know, that's about it. He's just, and, and even in this article, you know, just the, the he's a miracle. Jesus, whether or yeah. not you thought he was God, like he is a miracle. And if he wasn't God, then try to explain to me how we're still talking about him 2,000 years later, in spite of the fact that he did nothing of earthly significance right? I've said this before, never wrote a book, never held political office, never had any money, died a horrible didn't death, a utterly alone, didn't have any children. That's right. Wasn't on Instagram. Um, no. Three years he walked the earth and he's the most famous person who ever lived. You know, let's, let's talk more about Jesus because man, he is just so ridiculously compelling and totally changed the world for the better, for the better. Yeah, I um I guess this won't come out before Sunday. I don't I don't know where but um the gospel for this week is Lazarus and the Rich Man. And I mean, shout out to Same Old Song cuz uh I basically just like listened to it and wrote my sermon in 12 minutes. But it's it is this idea that um on some level we choose hell i mean it's a very they and they talked about c.s lewis the great divorce but that the rich man just like won't like he just keeps choosing like that he's controlling the situation that he's in charge that he gets to say what it is and this is a great great quote uh in from the great divorce like there are two kinds of people in this world those who say to god thy will be done and those who god says to those people thy will be done Mm. um and when i read pieces like this it's just um it's it it makes for me, it makes Christianity less scary. And it makes me realize that sometimes we come down to this question of, of, of which one are we choosing? Are, are we choosing that God's will be done? So are we choosing that the people who are around us who, yeah, let's be real, 2,500 years ago, no one's talking to because they're poor or they're, um, you know, unattractive or they're baby girls or they're, you know, any of these things. And, and, and now if we really believe that God's will is going to be done, like even if we're around people who we've never been around before or people who make us uncomfortable, like we're called into a posture of love. And that is, I mean, that for me is like this incredible outcome of grace. I mean, it's this incredible outcome of the cross that like we are called into love and not judgment. And so what does that, so what does that look like? I mean, I find that very honestly kind of exciting. It's like, what does that mean in my, in my life as a Christian that I actually don't, I don't get to have boundaries. Um, what does that mean? Um, 
it's kind of scary sometimes, but it's also this incredible, I mean, it's like the enjoy your forgiveness stuff, you know, it's like, what does this look like? Like, what do we, what do we get to do because of this? Um, Which I know at Mockingbird, we don't talk a lot about here's what, here's the application, you know, and this is certainly not a here's the application thing. It's, it is like this, like, grand experiment though of like if we acknowledge the gospel if we acknowledge that god's will is being done and then we find ourselves in the realities of this world like oh my goodness like what does that mean for a tuesday morning you know yeah so. i mean the the the, the, the strange the unfortunate thing is, is as you know what he's suggesting or at least holland's suggesting is that we might lose some of this beauty of what we're talking about as we lose actually the 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 reverence for Jesus as God and as as sort of yeah. the ultimate real authority, um, because you do see, you know, today you see when it comes to the the Lazaruses of the world and the last, the least, the little, that people the second that that becomes um, a, a special status, people use it to uh, justify themselves, and it becomes a, a bunch of different uh, everything becomes a bunch of different demographics who are jockeying not for, not to love people because they are the last, the least, the lost, and lonely, but because that somehow bestows on them um, some kind of uh, special status, special status rather than a lack well, of status. So it's a very, uh, I, I think that Jesus, Jesus is what's so incredible about him is he's both able to. Um, to love and yet you know as we know no not even like the beggars of the world showed up at the cross and said let him down you know (laughs) everyone everyone uh where was blind bartimaeus when jesus needed him yeah i mean like we we can't glamorize victims basically because both of these things I think the moment, though, that our love becomes self-derivative and not love because we're loved is that, I mean, that's always the difference for me. It's like, I'm exhausted if you tell me that these are the people I have to love because this is the X reason that they were marginalized. Like, there's that, the world's an endless newsfeed of that. But when I can recognize that despite, you know, I mean, what time is it? We're at 10 a.m. All of the sins I've committed at this point in the day already? (laughs) Already? Like, do you know how nice the cars are in our neighborhood and that I drive a 2011 Subaru? Like, already? That Jesus has chosen to love me? That? I mean, for that, that's just different. Like, then it's like, this is crazy, this Christianity thing. (laughs) Like, Like, you know, it just becomes this like kind of wild adventure about like, what's your day going to look like? Because there is this mighty God who has loved you against all odds. And so what does that mean for all like the like people that you're going to deal with that day? Like, what does that mean for like how you might respond to them? Cause you're like so mystified that someone has chosen to love you. Mm. And that's sort of so. free- freedom, I guess. Isn't it? It's crazy freedom. I mean, it's not like I'm in this all the time or I think this all the time, but you know, I do have these moments where it's like, oh my God. And word. Sarah, I just want to name that's exactly what we mock, quote unquote, mockingbirders are talking about when we say that, um, you know, that the indicatives, the imperatives flow from the indicatives, that Christian living, like you're talking about, that kind of freely loving. Um, you know, walking, trying, you know, at those moments when you actually maybe are walking the earth the way that Jesus did and treating people like people and listening to them, it flows from connecting over and over and over again with your prior belovedness. You know, you don't go do right. it because you're supposed to or because you ought to. You right. do it because you you just have experienced this love. And that's astonishing. And it's, and it's, a, and it's a better way to live. 
It is a more yeah. fun way to live in the it freedom totally of the Holy is. Spirit than, than sort of... You laugh at your own self-righteousness. You, you laugh at your own anger. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's fun incredible. and free. And, and you know, again, yeah. not, not that any of us, you know, we that, that's the ideal. And maybe we have a few days a year sure. when that's when life looks yes. like. But to the degree yes. that we can connect to God's um, untamable love for us, um, it's, it's going to empower us and, and inspire us to sort of um, be beacons of that you know, uh, in the world around us. And also the faith to, to you know, to let God uh, sort out the whatever needs to be sorted out. That's right. That's right. Do mm-hmm. not be so consumed mm-hmm. by your anxieties that it derails absolutely mm-hmm. everything. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. uh, we don't have to, f- we don't have to figure out what's uh, exactly the, we don't have to parse things in the world and figure out exactly what, um, we, we're, we're just called to simply respond. Yeah, right? it's interesting. It's like that thing people talk about, I can't, what is it called where you, this is a philosopher or something that said it, where you kind of, you believe because you just want to err on the side of safety, mm-hmm. right? Pascal's wager. Yes. And I always think that's like much more applicable to people, you know, and as someone who like falls into judgment and judging others all the time, like that's always the place. I mean, RJ is always very good at this. Like you just like assume the best because it's not yours to deal with, you know? Well, I think that's where we should end. We've gone way over time here, but um, clearly we've had a lot to say. So um, thank you guys, both of you for, um, for talking and just a just another plug for Storymakers, their their Advent um, zine, which has a comic part of it, and it's it's got a, a Christmas pageant script, uh, and it's you know it's really our children's uh, ministry wing that is uh, available starting October first. So if people want to know what Sarah's really talking about, here's your chance. Um, <laughs> Can I say one more thing about Storymakers? Because I think people see it, and I just want to clearly say this. I think people see it and they think, oh, that's only a thing you can do if you have, like, a table of seven boys. And I have been at those churches that have three kids that show up for Sunday school. And I just want to say this is a curriculum that works for three kids or works for 30 kids. And I cannot recommend it enough. You do not have to make this stuff up. Trust me. Let the experts do it. So that's my my pitch for story makers. Right. Yes. Well, on that note, talk to you guys later. Later, Dave. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. 